Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboy and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. We're recording this on Friday, October 9th. Three days ago, the House Judiciary Committee released a major report on antitrust and technology companies. Specifically, the majority staff of the committee's antitrust subcommittee argued over the course of hundreds of pages that Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google are dangerous monopolies. The committee and subcommittee chairman wrote in a cover letter that, quote, to put it simply, companies that once were scrappy underdog startups that challenged the status quo have become the kinds of monopolies we last saw in the era of oil barons and railroad tycoons, end quote. And they called for these companies to be broken up by the government. This report came from the Democratic side of the Judiciary Committee, but these kinds of arguments are no longer limited to the political left. In recent years, an increasing number of conservatives have also called for a reappraisal of the powers wielded by tech companies and the government's role in regulating them or even breaking them up. In light of these policy debates, National Affairs, a quarterly journal on public policy, commissioned a series of essays on technology and government, considering everything from the company's cultural power to their geopolitical power. I'm proud to say that I helped lead that project, and this week, before the Judiciary Committee released its report, we began to release the first of those essays online. The project as a whole is titled Big Tech, Big Government, The Challenges of Regulating Internet Platforms. We'll we'll link to it in the description of this episode. And my guest today is one of the project's authors. Joshua Wright is a university professor of law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School and executive director of the law school's Global Antitrust Institute. And he knows these issues not just in theory, but also in practice. He's served multiple times in the Federal Trade Commission as the FTC's inaugural scholar in residence from 2007 to 2008, and later as one of the FTC's commissioners from 2013 to 2015. And his essay in this project, which is co-authored by uh, Jan Ribnicek, is titled A Time for Choosing the Conservative Case Against Weaponizing Antitrust. Josh, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here, Adam. Now, in a moment, we'll turn to the essay that that you wrote. But first, let's talk at least a little about the House Judiciary Committee's report. I mean, in fact, let's just talk more broadly about the work of the Judiciary Committee overall. This is a a project that they've been pushing now for a long time. They staffed up specifically to target these antitrust companies, to target these, these companies, investigate them. There were hearings on them not long ago, and now the report is out. How should we think overall about this this sort of project they've undertaken, and and what's your uh, your thoughts on on the report that just came out? It's certainly uh, a big milestone, sort of for congressional oversight when it comes uh, to antitrust. The committees on the Senate and House side have uh, been doing hearings uh, and, and the like for a really long time, but this is certainly uh, the most important work product that's come out of either side of Congress in quite a while. Um, Let me maybe start with a couple of observations about the report uh, to sort of locate its importance in this this broader debate. Um, First, I want to say the the staff that worked on, it's 450 pages. It's got some uh, 2,500 footnotes. Um, It's a massive undertaking and something that these folks worked for a long time on and, and, and worked quite hard on, uh, obviously. I'm going to say some things that are critical of it, but I, I, those are mostly uh, critical of the approach taken 
to legislative fact finding uh, and also some of the actual proposals. But uh, no, no doubt. And let me sort of start by underscoring this is a pretty heavy lift by uh, by, by the committee. A couple of observations that I want to start with, and I'll, I'll sort of make two overarching observations. And if you want to talk about specific proposals in the report, we, we can do that. Um, the first is that uh, the report at the end of the day, for all 450 pages, ends up being, being a pretty partisan project. Um, there was, for 18 months, a dramatic a series of promises by Chairman Cicilline that there was going to be bipartisan support um, announced really early in the project, midway through the project, at the end of the project, uh, a delay in releasing the thing to try to get a couple Republican signatories on to the proposals. And at the very end of the day, and we can talk about why, but for better or worse, uh, it ends up being um, it ends up being a partisan, completely partisan project. Um, you did have, you know, Ken Buck, a Republican, issues a, a quote-unquote third-way report where he expresses some sympathy for a handful of the proposals, um, uh, but no signatories at the end of the day. And I think uh, that that's going to be fairly important if we're going to talk about uh, what, if anything, comes from these proposals. The second observation I, I make reading the report, and um, you know, I read. Every page and every footnote now um, is it is in a way obviously incredibly ambitious, right? It it, it proposes massive overhaul of the modern antitrust system, not only on the regulatory front, but there is a call so calls for uh, new agencies and calls for flipping burdens of proof in run of the mill antitrust cases and. Uh, things of that nature, but also calls for overturning nearly 20 Supreme Court antitrust cases uh, from the 1980s on. And I can tell you there aren't many more than 20 Supreme Court antitrust cases from the 1980s on. It is basically a proposal to overturn everything. Uh, footnote 2504 of the report is a, is a proposal that Congress pass legislation to denounce a law review article by Frank Easterbrook in the 1980s. Okay. This is nothing is left untouched. Um, I looked mo closely to see if there was a congressional resolution to condemn any of my articles, no such luck. Um, but that leads to the other observation. And, and maybe the, the, the other edge of the ambition sword is that the, the proposals um, in the project come off, I think a little bit unfocused. Uh, this is not targeted on, you know, just tech platforms or did, it certainly will have a large effect and it certainly is sold that way. Um, but into the, um, you know, the, the baby that goes into the bathwater includes uh, lots of forms of competition we see in brick and mortar markets. And so uh, ambitious, unfocused, um, and at the end of the day, fairly a partisan project are the things that sort of jump off from a, the page to me from a 30,000 foot perspective when I, when I read the report. Now, uh, you know, we started to plan this podcast before the report even came out. And so I don't want to focus exclusively on the report, but it's a, it's a useful case study before we move on to the, the core of our own project. Um, I'm just, maybe if we, you could offer an example of one of the sort of the concrete things 
business practices or something that any of these four companies, Apple, Google, Facebook, and uh, uh, Amazon, you know, the, thing, the, the kind of thing they're complaining about and, and, and why that complaint under current antitrust law is, is, is no real complaint at all. It, it, it's, it's, it's either requiring a major change in the law or a major sort of, or a misunderstanding of the facts to justify the, the policy that they're, they're arguing for. Sure. So a, a couple of things. Um, I think it's important to start with understanding sort of what happens under modern antitrust law. Um, so modern antitrust law is guided by something called the consumer welfare standard. Um, folks new to the antitrust debate often conflate in part because of the labeling as a standard, they conflate the consumer welfare standard with a description of the liability standard in antitrust, right? They think that yeah. it means if you show the harms are greater than the benefits of some practice by 12 cents, um, the plaintiff wins. And if not, the plaintiff loses. Uh, that's not, it's not what the consumer welfare standard is for different sorts of business practices. There are different liability standards, um, but the consumer welfare standard is the, the lodestar of the system. Right? It is setting the goal for the system for the design of those liability rules and the design of our procedural institutions uh, within antitrust. But under the consumer welfare standard, would a plaintiff, be they private plaintiff, state attorney general, or, or uh, public enforcement agency like the FTC or DOJ, what they have to do, um, and Silver simplifies a bit by necessity, but what they have to do to win a case under modern antitrust law is go largely to an Article Three judge in federal court and prove that the business practice alleged uh, to violate the antitrust laws harm competition in consumers. This is essentially what they've got to prove. And there have for a long time been fights among more conservative and more progressive antitrust scholars and judges and practitioners about what the quantum of that proof ought to be. Um, do, do you need to show actual competitive effects? Price went up and output went down innovation rates went down? Is it enough to show it's likely? Um, how strong are inferences from competitor complaints? Lots of sort of normal fights, but agreement on the, the system. Um, most of where the report comes from is that the premise that this case-by-case -case adjudication over the effects of the restraint is the wrong way to go. What we ought to do is just set a bunch of bright line rules. Uh, if your share is above 30, stuff you do is illegal including mergers to get your share above 30, but lots of business practices once you get there. Um, it's sort of a shift to bright line rules. Now, bright line rules can be fine when they're, you know, even bright line rules can be consistent with the consumer welfare standard if they're based on the underlying economics. Yeah. Um, but really, this has been a movement towards bright line rules. I'll give an example in direct answer to the question. So, for example, um, conduct that I'll use Google, uh, Google might engage in where the government would have a difficult time bringing a case. So the FTC closed an investigation at the end of 2015, um, excuse me, at the end of 2012. Uh, I came shortly after, wasn't at the commission when this happened, but they issued a big statement. And the complaint was, look, um, when people are searching for a pizza joint in Arlington, sometimes Google answers with a map. What we call universal search. Um, sometimes it answers with a, a map at the top of that screen. They didn't like the existing maps. They thought MapQuest had a bad map, so they made their own. 
uh, and they started answering queries with it. And MapQuest, by necessity, is sort of further down on the list. And people like MapQuest or um, Yelp or uh, travel search engines or whoever uh, complained to the agencies. And they said, you know, they made their own product and that made life harder on us. Uh, and they favored their own product over ours. And that ought to be anti-competitive. Antitrust laws don't say that that's an illegitimate complaint. They say, put your money where your mouth is and show that there's been harm to competition and not just um, Google competing with you by bringing its own map. The question is, are consumers better off or worse off? And that's the sort of complaint under the consumer welfare standard where those complainants have not had luck in the United States. Under the rules proposed in the House and in European antitrust law, those complaints uh, do much better, right? There's a system of bright line rules that say, uh, you know, if you compete on a platform, you can't do a bunch of stuff. Here's a list. One of the lists is make your own stuff. So uh, that's Google making maps. That's mm-hmm. Apple having its own apps in its app store. That's Walmart selling private label socks in its, in its, in its store too. Um, and so some of these things, I think, uh, are your, your listeners will have a casual intuition that are, are pro-consumer. So, some they may not be sure. Some may feel suspicious. The way antitrust law has traditionally treated that is that some of these questions are hard. Let's require the plaintiff to have some burden of proof to show they're anti-competitive. Yeah, a few years ago, I wrote a piece for a different policy quarterly, uh, The New Atlantis, uh, where I raised some questions about Google's capabilities and what it might be able to do in the future. But as, and so I, I, have some, I had some concerns then, and, and I still think about these things. One of the things that really sort of amazed me as I, as I wrote that in the context of these broader debates was how much emphasis uh, progressives in particular were putting on antitrust law. Um, to solve a variety of problems that wasn't clear to me they actually were antitrust problems. It seemed, am I wrong in saying that, that a lot of the debate around the tech companies have been complaints about various things that aren't really antitrust problems and we're trying to change antitrust law or, or just wield anti, or you say the title of your essay, weaponize antitrust law to, to fight a lot of other perceived problems that aren't really antitrust problems? Or is that, is that a mistake? It's not a mistake at all, and I think it's happening uh, on the left and, and the right. And, yeah. and look, antitrust has a, a, an attractive set of remedies. Um, if you want to start hitting stuff with a hammer, well, anti- antitrust is a nice hammer. Um, how well it fits the, the, the job uh, or how appropriate of a tool it is for particular jobs, I think, uh, is up for significant debate. But I think on the left, there has been um, there's really a fight internal to uh, progressives in antitrust. And I think you'll see some of this play out with, um, you know, should Biden get elected? I think you'll see some of the, this, the power plays on the left for uh, who, who gets the personnel spots at the FTC and DOJ and what antitrust policy looks like. But the fight is sort of progressive academics uh, uh, for the past, 30 years who have agreed that the consumer welfare standard is the right paradigm, but we, we ought to do more. We should bring more cases and, um, you know, tweaks around the margins, uh, bring more, bring more cases. I, I would describe the Obama administration in which I was a minority commissioner in the FTC during this time as one such example. Um, and 
more recently, the more sort of populist left uh, the Open Markets Institute, Bernie Sanders, Liz Warren, Lena Khan, uh, who is saying, well, that approach has got us nowhere. Let's abandon the consumer welfare standard and let's use antitrust to, uh, as, a, as a tool to uh, enhance democracy in whatever, whatever they mean by that, uh, to address income inequality, to address climate change. And an FTC commissioner uh, say recently that antitrust was uh, an, an appropriate and necessary tool to address race relations in the United States. Um, and, and one may think these are all laudable goals, uh, but they've been traditionally, we've thought uh, we have a body you go to to do those things. And you go to Congress and, and you pass laws um, to do public interest things. Um, mm-hmm. But antitrust has quite purposefully avoided being um, in all tools for all, you know, in all tools for all jobs. Uh, sort of institution. On the right, you see that as well, right? On the right, there are now calls. I mean, these House hearings, um, it was the House Democrats focused more on antitrust questions than the House Republicans, to be sure, um, who want to talk about whether we should be using antitrust um, to attack big tech firms because they are sometimes not nice to conservatives. Um, And so, so you get some of that on both sides. It's sort of antitrust to police speech on the right and antitrust to do sort of achieve a bunch of socioeconomic and political goals on, on the left. Yeah. Let's, so let's, let's, let's sort of close the loop on the looking at the left and, and look at the right. You mentioned a moment ago among progressives and liberals, there's long been debates about antitrust law. And it goes back more than a few decades. And one of my favorite books I like to go back to on these things, it's a much older book. It's by Alice Hawley and it's called The New Deal and the Problem of Monopoly. And he traces how the, the Roosevelt administration worked on, a, they used a variety of tools, regulation, uh, uh, breakup and, or antitrust and cooperation with, with big, big companies. And so it's a longstanding debate, but what's so fascinating, I think about the current moment, it's what inspired the National Affairs Project that we worked on was, was the fact that now you do have this sort of bubbling up of new debate on the right. And, and your essay, A Time for Choosing, a, a ref, a, an allusion back to President Reagan or before he was president, I guess, his famous speech in 1964 on the, the course of the, the country, the course of our politics, a time for choosing which way conservatives should look on these tech issues. The National Affairs Project, I mean, National Affairs is primarily a, a, a center-right policy journal, and we conceived of this project, National Affairs Editor Yuval Levin and I, as an opportunity for conservatives and libertarians to sort of think through varying perspectives on uh, these tech issues. And so we have essays coming out on geopolitical issues, cultural issues, informational issues, and, and so on. Um, but for your essay, your and Jan's essay, one of the things I really like about it, and again, we'll link to it in the description, I really encourage people to read it, is the way that you take the, the last 40 years of conservative antitrust law that's now under challenge, even from the right, and you root it in the conservative view of the rule of law in general. And you point out that the thinkers on these issues, most famously Bork, but the, the, the Chicago professors, uh, Easterbrook, Scalia, and others, this conversation about antitrust was a conversation about the rule of law. And it was rooted in the same instincts that animated things like textualism and originalism. So could you just situate sort of the, the consumer welfare standard and the emergence of modern antitrust thought the last 40 years in that the broader conservative legal world? Absolutely. So 
when I teach antitrust law um, to, to, to law students, one of my uh, approaches is uh, if you look at the antitrust syllabus for most antitrust law professors, you spend a month doing antitrust law from 1890 to 1977. And you read all of the old cases. And, um, and I love doing that. And I sometimes do that in antitrust seminars because I think it's very important and I encourage them to read it. In my antitrust one course, I'm trying to teach them to be antitrust practitioners today. And we, we start in 1960, we watch the law change in the mid-70s, and off we go into practice, right, uh, into, into modern cases. And so I'm sometimes forced to give the history of antitrust law in, in, you know, less than one lecture or 10 minutes or 20 minutes. And often what I will say, and I will say it here, um, tongue partially in, in, in cheek, is, you know, if you look back at the state of antitrust law in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, everything was le- illegal, everything. Yeah. Um, that was the state of the law, uh, exclusive dealing arrangement, tying arrangement, anything you can think of to do with a contract other than the spot market transaction. When I trade $5 for my coffee in the morning, yeah. and we do it simultaneously because we don't trust each other. Um, anything other than that, any long-term contract, uh, resale price maintenance, suggested price, horizontal mergers, the whole thing, yeah. um, tying your, you know, the sale of shoelaces to shoes, all of it is illegal. Um, and some of it criminal, mind you, and being prosecuted criminally uh, at the time. And so, you know, mergers to 5% market share, unlawful. Uh, Justice Potter Stewart says in a dissent in uh, Vaughn's Grocery in 1966, the, the only consistency in Clayton Act cases is that the government always wins. Yeah. And that was a, a, a merger chain, uh, Vaughn's Grocery was a, a supermarket merger to about 5%. Everything's illegal. Yeah is the point. And so um, the rule of law is absent from antitrust. It's just prosecutorial discretion now. Does the DOJ want to sue you? Does, does the FTC want to sue you? Because what you are doing, or a private plaintiff, because what you are doing is unlawful um, and, and perhaps criminal. And so part of that is because the objectives of the law were unclear. Congress passed a statute that said, uh, thou shalt not restrain trade. Thou shalt not monopolize. Um, thou shalt not do things to substantially lessen competition later in the Clayton Act, right? Um, and said, courts figure it out. Sherman himself said, we're, we're, we're not into listing things here. We're going we're gonna to punt this to the court. We're going to delegate to the courts to do this in a, in a common law-like fashion. Um, and so he, fast forward to the 70s, and Chicago school thinkers uh, and, and, and others. I'm a UCLA guy, so some UCLA thinkers too. Um, start thinking about the antitrust project uh, in the 60s and the 70s. And they start looking and, and thinking, a lot of these cases don't make any sense. I was Aaron Director at the University of Chicago, sort of team teaching a law class, starting to read the cases and said, what are you guys, what are you guys doing over there? Um, in the antitrust law side of, of, of the world. And a lot of scholarly attention starts getting paid to the idea that we're probably punishing things that end up being part of the competitive process and, and, and helping uh, consumers. But if you read those cases, uh, the rule of law is gone. And it's mostly because antitrust was trying to serve too many masters at once. The antitrust laws were uh, in some cases to promote small business, in other cases to promote efficiency, in other cases still to promote particular industries, agriculture in particular, um, and other cases meant to be a broader socioeconomic tool. Uh, when I coined the term, which I got a, fl- a lot of flack for on the 
the, the, the left, a hipster antitrust, it was an ode to this idea uh, that, you know, the, the current calls were looking a lot like calls to return to this 1960s styles antitrust where everything was unlawful and, you know, we just knew that by looking at each other and winking. We were too cool to do any, any real analysis. Um, and I think that's sort of where this debate got situated. But it was the conservative project. Uh, led by thinkers out of those schools and led by judges appointed by Ronald Reagan in the 80s, the, the Steve Williams and Doug Ginsburg and Easterbrook and Scalia and Bork and Thomas, um, that looked at this project and some of them with real antitrust experience and others who came to it later and said, um, it doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. And it was... Uh, Judge uh, Doug Ginsburg uh, has a great essay on the link between originalism and law and economics and antitrust um, uh, with the idea that the fundamental project of the law and economics movement and antitrust was if we think about the distribution of arguments that can be made in these cases and give potential liability, it was really cutting off the tails of those distributions. It was taking wild stuff off the table so we could focus our disputes over uh, this sort of reasonable range and have a tool for answering questions and testing hypotheses um, rather than relying on sort of gut intuition to determine these cases. And that project was a massive success. It was brought because of lack of rule of law and antitrust. It succeeded in academia. It succeeded in the lower courts. It succeeded in the antitrust agencies with Bill Baxter at the DOJ and Jim Miller at the FTC, it succeeded in Congress. Um, by my lights, and I'm, you know, I don't purport to be any great scholar of legal history. I'm, you know, a one maybe two trick pony with with antitrust and a couple of other things. But if there is another example of a success of the conservative legal movement having as deep and as wide success as this movement and antitrust. I've never heard about it and I've never seen it and I've never read about it, but it was precisely a project aimed at remedying the lack of rule of law by bringing that sort of discipline. And it has been uh, a, a, a wild success. And bringing the rule of law, not just for its own sake, although of course that's important, but also because the stable rule of law is the means to the greater end of human flourishing, innovation, and so on. Only once the rule of law is really settled and people can then, and companies can then begin to organize their affairs around the rules and plan for the long term, you know, having some semblance of certainty. Obviously, laws can be amended, things change, we live in an uncertain world, but shrinking that sphere of uncertainty, especially in terms of the risk of just prosecutorial discretion and so on. That was key in many ways to, to, to help uh, undergird a flourishing and innovative economy. I'm not saying that the, the, the steadiness of, of antitrust law is what gave us these Silicon Valley companies. That's not true, but it's part of what gave us that, just as it's part of what gave us all of sort of our flourishing uh, modern economy. And so that's sort of what's at risk by a destabilization of the antitrust laws. I think that's that's right, and that's why the marriage on in the this was an example uh, on the right of a marriage of sort of the the law and economics crowd who cares deeply about the relationship between property rights and economic growth and the rule of law and 
of understanding the rules of the game. Um, and the sort of, you know, for lack of better terms, sort of rule of law crowd on, on the right as well. You saw scholars coming to antitrust that would otherwise not be attracted to, uh, to the project. It was that marriage that I think proved, uh, remarkably fruitful. The response to this on, uh, the left sort of the, the first set of attacks on the consumer welfare standard, having watched, you know, if you were a progressive watching the antitrust project and thought um, antitrust should be doing what it did in the 60s uh, and should be a much bigger part of the organization of these firms and antitrust should be a tool to do climate change and economic inequality. And you, you looked, you would look and say, um, well, goodness, I'm not going to succeed in the courts. Uh, and so maybe I ought to do legislation or rulemaking at the FTC or uh, sort of some other uh, some other approach. And indeed, most of the critics on the left that started saying, ah, let's get rid of the consumer welfare standard and adopt a, a public interest standard within mm-hmm. antitrust quickly pivoted and abandoned uh, that approach because of the counter arguments from some on the left and all of the right saying, um, we're not going to get rid of the rule of law here. And I think this bright line approach that's emerged now, well, you know, hey, conservatives, what are you going to say now? We're just going to announce everything's illegal on Tuesday. And that's a certain rule. So there's your rule of law for you. Um, and so that, I think, is where the debate is now. It's a series of bright line rules. I think my view is largely detached from uh, the sort of economic welfare arguments. It's uh, but the pivot has been, okay, we'll meet you in this uh, rule of law space by making bright line rules. But the rules are going to be, you know, if you're a firm above X size, here's a list of things you can't do. Yeah. Now, this this National Affairs Project that we keep referring to, it's not a project of the Gray Center. I mean, I'm happy to be involved in both. The Gray Center itself has has had a number of roundtables on technology and regulation We've had authors and other participants on all sides of these issues. In fact, uh, one of our the working papers we put out in recent years, uh, it's for those who want to look it up, it's number 19-33. It is by Adam Kandub, who's normally at Michigan State. He's now actually in uh, the Trump administration at, in the Commerce Department, leading the effort to uh, regulate some of the social media companies under uh, Section 230 of the of the the, the, the um, was section two thirty of the Communications Decency Act, um, and so we've 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 I've had a front row seat for a lot of the academic debates around not just antitrust but the broader issues, and it has been interesting to see the arguments coming from the right, both in the intellectual world and in the policy world. Maybe the easiest way to grapple with those here is to start with a concrete example. In your paper, Josh, you talk about a proposal from uh, Senator Josh Hawley, who's uh, been a, a vocal advocate on these on these issues. I mean, even when he was in the Missouri Attorney General's office, he was uh, very vocal on these issues, and, and now he's a senator. And you refer to a proposal he has to regulate um, using a combination of, of the aforementioned Section 230 and the Federal Trade Commission. Why don't we just allude? Why don't we just discuss that briefly, and then, or I guess, what I, where I want to go with it is, is see what sort of concerns are embodied in that legislation, and do you think those concerns are, first of all, valid, and to the extent that they are valid, what's the better way to channel this into policy? Sure. So, 
Senator Hawley's been very active in this in this space. Uh, certainly when he was Missouri AG, and I think you see some conservative AGs sort of seeing that as a model now um, for a, you know, a, a, a route to success. Um, and what he has done as a senator sort of continued to carry that torch. I've been in front of him in the Senate Judiciary Committee testifying and um, I consider him a friend, and so it's always fun to have uh, debate debates on the Senate floor. Uh, yeah, let, let me throw in on that. By the way, I uh, I've known Senator Hawley as an acquaintance for a long time, but also just talking with members of his staff on these issues. I mean, these are extremely smart, and 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 you know, I think they're extremely smart, and they're they're making these arguments in good faith, which is sort of what makes them so interesting and and challenging to grapple with. I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. No, 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 that's fine, and I, and, I, and and I think that's right, and they're important debates to have. I think that there's a um, in the antitrust world. What's been interesting for me as a you know an observer and a, a participant in these debates is there have been times when um, one side or other of the aisle was sort of set in their antitrust approach, and the other was having a, a sort of a big internal debate about who they want to be when they grow up. Uh, you had this debate on the the right at different times when the left was said, and then you had it the other way around. Now everybody's having an internal debate and a debate with the other side at the same yeah. time. And it is, a, um, it's a, a little bit of a food fight, but, um, but I, I think there are a lot of, a lot of arguments certainly being made in, in, in good faith about the direction of antitrust. And frankly, for me as someone who teaches this stuff, it's, it's, it's the best time in a long time to be an antitrust person yeah. um, because nothing's off the table and everybody's got to revisit uh, sort of deeply held priors, and I, I think that's a good, healthy thing to do. Um, now, Senator Hawley's proposal, and he's he's made a, a couple of now, but the one that I think got the most attention uh, involving section the one you, you alluded to, section two hundred and thirty of the CDA, um, I paid particular attention to because uh, it has the FTC in it, and yeah. my, my my old stomping ground, so I sort of care deeply about it, and. Uh, the idea was that we would have the Federal Trade Commission do regulation of content moderation and the way in particular uh, to regulate bias, uh, uh, bias displayed by uh, a platform that would be platforms would be defined uh, in the legislation. But the idea would be a vote of three politically appointed bureaucrats would decide whether a social media platform's decision was either designed to or motivated by an intent to or would have sort of a disparate impact style uh, prong or would have the effect of negatively impacting a political party. Um, you've seen, you know, President Trump had an executive order that asked the FTC to, you know, study the question closely and, you know, winks a little bit at bringing consumer protection actions uh, against agencies for content moderation decisions. Uh, the FTC chairman, I think, um, went up to the Senate and said, we don't have the authority to do that, uh, and, we, and we don't want to do that, um, which uh, rumors about losing his job started circulating the next day. Uh, so read into that what you will. Uh, but you've got a bunch of these around uh, in, the, in conservative corners. A.G. A- Barr you know, said a couple times in speeches, uh, talking about big tech that the antitrust laws themselves forget 230. The antitrust laws themselves are a, a tool for uh, regulating content moderation decisions. 
um, count me skeptical on the antitrust claim. Um, But with respect to that 230 legislation, um, you know, as someone who um, sat as a political appointee in those those agencies um, and knowing well the people who have sat in those agencies for the past 20 or so years, uh, the idea that they are uh, that politically appointed bureaucrats with no expertise in the subject matter are the right people uh, to be making those decisions um, is a scary one to me. Yeah. Uh, it's a really scary one uh, to me. So, um, you know, uh, doing content moderation to weed out, uh, hold aside the normative question about whether we want government institutions to be doing content moderation in yeah. the first instance, and presuming you do, uh, getting a room full of five political appointees at a table to make those de- decisions seems like a really bad way to do it. I, I fall into the camp of thinking it's a bad idea to have government institutions engaged in that in uh, the first place. Um, but I do think, and I think it's a fair question when we start as well, if it's, if it's not, if it's not two thirty in the FTC, you've got a lot of conservatives sort of riled up at the idea of online platforms making content moderation decisions that are biased against conservatives. And so, and so what do you, what, what do you do? Um, I think it has been a problem for those companies that they have not come to the table yet with alternatives. And so, you know, they've run themselves in, in policy circles. I think it was Senator Cruz who said this almost directly, that it's, it's either 230 or antitrust, pick your poison. Um, these, are tools, these are tools that are going to punish you for discriminating against conservatives. Um, now, I'm not a big fan of, I mean, that's a, a, an example of, of weaponizing antitrust to sort of carry out political objectives. And I, I, I criticize things like that. Equally, yeah. and I do not think under existing antitrust law you could do much of this, which is why you see the pivot to the CDA and um, in other terms. But you know, if I were conservatives, uh, conservative working on a political solution to this issue rather than you know sort of analyzing it in my scholarly capacity, yeah, I sure would be jumping on. Um, you know, so it reminds me a lot of the net neutrality debate. I would sort of be jumping on. Uh, a proffered solution in which I, the platform, made out loud a series of promises that you could hold me to under sort of normal consumer protection law. Yeah. One of the things that was so striking uh, when you were talking, I, I looked up uh, the executive order you alluded to. It's Executive Order 13925. It came out in the late spring. And when that when the order was released, there was a lot of, Debate. I think a lot of it was muddied by the fact that the draft that leaked before the final order was substantially different. And so a lot of the reactions to the order itself were really reactions, at least at first, to the draft. And then once that was sort of clarified, people were focused on the specific details. But when you, I think people missed the forest for the trees. Um, it was just so convoluted, the idea that the way to deal with this issue and the executive order was titled Preventing Online Censorship Yes, the idea was we'll have a subunit of the Department of Commerce petition the FCC for a rulemaking, and then we'll rely on the FTC to bring in 
to sort of enforce through consumer protection laws, and we need the Justice Department to investigate um, at the same time uh, other issues. It was such a shotgun spray. I think it was almost a concession that the law really didn't clearly point in a direction on this. And this was an effort to kind of grab together a bundle of things in the hopes that the right policy outcome would come. But there wasn't just a, it was just so convoluted, I think, it was a concession to the fact that the law really didn't point in this direction. Um, Now, who knows how this is going to play out? You mentioned the FTC commissioner. We actually had another, the FTC chairman, we had another member of the FTC commissioner, uh, Noah Phillips, on a Gray Center webinar recently talking about what we called uh, the problem of old tech and uh, or new tech and old laws. And it's just as, as somebody who, as the name on the door says, studies the administrative state, it is sort of baffling to, to watch so many people who criticize the modern administrative state put so much emphasis on uh, administrative discretion and ind- independent commission power to 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 fight back against these companies that they're they're dissatisfied with. It's this is the reason why this, why this whole project that we've worked on is so interesting to me is that it's as it's a it involves law policy and also also almost a cultural debate about about these companies. Um, that's not so much a question as it is an observation. Um, so where do you think this debate is headed next in the aftermath of both the policy proposals from the right and and now this this majority re- report from the House Judiciary Committee? So let me let me say two things about where I, I think it's going. Uh, one about legislation and another, I think that will will warm your heart and give us lots to talk about in the years to come, uh, which is the answer is going to be rulemaking. Um, I, I think the day of antitrust and administrative law, um, you know, if you walk around an ABA antitrust section event and you know, you were to pull people on who really knew any administrative law, you would, you'd get a sad, small numbered answer. Um, but I think the day where antitrust and administrative law are sort of, for, you know, wed for the next generation is coming. Yeah. Um, and I certainly am encouraging all of my students now uh, to, to take as much administrative law as they can, um, because I think that the direction this is going, um, I'll get back to le- what... I mean, my punchline is going to be, I think we get nothing on the legislative yeah. side. And if anything's very, you know, very small action on the legislative side. And so the pivot's going to be to rulemaking and they've already hinted to this. So I, um, I had commissioner Chopra in my FTC seminar at Scalia just this week, uh, talking about sort of rulemaking on, on, not just on these content moderation issues, but sort of generally as if the progressive move, um, and you can have, dissatisfied conservatives sort of join this too. If you the idea is you, you're not going to get it done in court yeah. um, because you put judges there who aren't going to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, I think the problem for conservatives is we've spent all of this uh, political uh, and intellectual energy on the judicial project. And now in antitrust, as it gets more important, we're pivoting away from the judges. We, we just put on the bench. It is yeah. uh, that part of it is baffling to me. And I think, um, for me, I, I look at that and I say, uh, this is evidence to me of the grab for antitrust as being sort of a short run gratification to do weaponization of antitrust, to, to, to meet harm out on either political, on political enemies or economic enemies or, or what have you. Um, 
and not a wise long run project, which is uh, a theme that runs runs through the essay. It is so at odds with so many other parts of conservative legal tradition uh, and and successful movements, including in antitrust, that I'm I'm sort of left with that conclusion. But if you if you have a different vision for antitrust, whether it's the left vision of sort of meeting out racial and social and economic justice all through the tool of antitrust, or whether it's on the right and you envision antitrust playing a greater role in content moderation or just slapping around platforms because they haven't been nice to you, um, then you're not going to do it through Article 3. Um, it's not going to happen there. I do not think it's going to happen in Congress, and I'll, I'll sort of come back to that, but I think that where this goes at the FTC um, is is to rulemaking. And I think you're going to see an attempt through the unfair methods of competition prong of the, UM, the FTC Section 5 authority, an attempt to do bright line rulemaking. Uh, whoever is in charge, uh, the FTC is sort of left competition rulemaking as a tool on the table for a long time. They've not used it. Uh, Commissioner Chopra, I think you've got two votes to do competition rules right now. That's that's one away from a competition rule. Yeah. Um, and so I think the next step is going to be, my prediction is the FTC looks a lot like the FCC the next 10 years in terms of rulemaking in DC Circuit Review and rulemaking in DC Circuit Review to try to adopt some of these things and then end around the consumer welfare standard. I think that pivot happens in large part because my prediction about the legislative project that comes out of the House effort and, um, you know, presumably will, you know, you see some action in the, the Senate too, is largely that it will fail. Um, that's a couple reasons for that. One is because most efforts at legislation fail. I think that's the, 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 the baseline. Um, but two it sort of goes back to where we started on the House report. I think it is a largely partisan project. It did not draw on uh, any Republican to sign it. You know, the one Republican sort of issued his middle ground thing. Um, you know, the couple, the handful of things over which this sort of one Republican, but not others, have joined yet is, you know, give the agencies more funding. Um, he did express some sympathy for inverting the burden of proof. Yeah. Um, that to me is wild. I, I, I suspect that that's not a project that many conservatives are going to get behind. Um, if you were to search your soul for uh, sort of good old fashioned rule of law propositions, the plaintiffs bearing the burden of proof is, you know, probably pretty high on the list. And um, in antitrust technocratic circles, interestingly enough, this proposal to shift the burden, yeah. uh, it started in, in, in Europe and it's very popular. Um, you know, if you read the, there's a Stigler Center report and a UK report and a report that got out of Europe. You just flip the burdens. It's just a little tweak. Um, don't worry about it. There's nothing to see here. Uh, but the idea that that uh, sells quite as well uh, here with our legal tradition, I think, is um, is far-fetched. So my, my punchline is I think you're going to see probably 10 to 12 proposals marked up out of the house. Yeah. Obviously a lot of the, you know, the potential for success comes if the Republicans lose the Senate. Uh, if the Republicans keep the Senate, I think you see absolutely nothing out of any of this. Yeah. Uh, and you get the full rulemaking shift and you get it immediately. If the Republicans lose the Senate, you might see a couple of bills around, um, 
you know, presumptions and merger cases or something like that. But uh, my my sort of big picture prediction is um, a lot of smoke, no, fi- no fire. Well, let's let's end on the smoke then. Um, you know, we said earlier that one of the, the important parts of the reform of antitrust law over the last several decades was just providing greater certainty in the rule of law. Even if you're right, the legislation is, is unlikely and the, the, the new generation of judges are not going to be inclined towards this. I remember years ago when I was still in law school, my friend uh, Andrew Oldham, who's now a judge, I think he wrote his paper on why the Sherman Act itself was a, maybe violated the non-delegation doctrine. Um, but, but even if, apart from all of that, can't, the, can't agencies themselves create so much uncertainty under existing law that it will you know, deter innovation uh, especially among smaller companies who might not be able to to grapple with the regulatory uncertainty. How much of a problem is that? Maybe we'll end on that. I think it's a big problem. I do. I think it's a big problem. And this is the problem where um, I spend more of my intellectual time worrying about and trying to write about now is the uncertainty um, either doing harm by imposing uncertainty or doing harm by imposing certainly bad rules. Um, and both of those things, I think, are a major concern. Interestingly, I think conventional wisdom in antitrust has been the, the DOJ is the more powerful of the two sort of sister competition agencies. Just need one person to decide to bring a case, approve a merger, don't approve a merger. Um, and, you know, the FTC sort of the, 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 the little brother of the, of the two. You know, you've got to work to get consensus. You've got, a, you know, a staff culture that's emerged around the idea that if they can shop to a couple of commissioners, they might be able to get to get their way. Um, I think there's going to be a little bit of a shift in that as you shift away from Article Three courts as the the locus of antitrust activity. Um, I think what you get instead is attempts by the FTC in particular to do rulemaking or even, you know, guidance documents as they want to do with, you know, the horizontal merger guidelines or um, the statements that they have on the consumer protection side of the house on deception and their unfair acts or practices authority are, um, they're not rules, but they're incredibly influential and incredibly influential um, to courts when these cases arise. I can imagine very much an agency without ever uh, doing a rule, um, imposing a great deal of uncertainty through agency guidance, through speeches, through, um, you know, it's been a tool the FTC has used for some time and uh, been beat down once or twice in court for it, but uh, it it sure hasn't gone away. So I can imagine, and especially um, if you read the speeches of Commissioner Chopra, who you know may may well end up chairing Chopra and a Biden administration made. Um, there is there is no uncertainty about what he would like to do with rulemaking at the agency, um, and I think to his credit for being clear about that, and he wants to pass a bunch of bright line rules. Um, and so in that case, I'm worried much more much less about uncertainty than rules that are certain and harmful. And I think where the sort of next frontier of battles then go are, you know, limits on what agencies can and cannot do uh, in, in that context. Right. Well, Josh, uh, thank you so much for taking time to discuss all of these things. And thanks again for writing this essay. 
Absolutely my pleasure. It was a lot of fun to do and always fun. Um, my co-author for the essay, Jan Ribnacek, is uh, sort of my, my first antitrust student yeah. and uh, now often a, a big successful antitrust lawyer in private practice. So um, a lot of fun to be able to, uh, always fun to be able to join with a former student on a project. Uh, and, you know, anything you like about the essay, we can, we can give Jan credit and people can send their complaints <laughs> to me. Well, I, they often do. Uh, uh, the the essay, which w- was linked in the the show information, is titled "The Time for Choosing: The Conservative Case Against Weaponizing Antitrust." It's part of the National Affairs Project, Big Tech, Big Government: The Challenges of Regulating Internet Platforms. Uh, thank you all for joining us for this episode of Arbitrary and Capricious, and please join us for the next episode. <laughs>